the fact that you have case-by-case -case consultations, that doesn't in itself mean that everything is going to be blocked. Uh, you could, in principle, have a situation where uh, all these options for uh, raising objections exist on paper, but most people don't know about them or don't know how to game the system or whatever. NIMBY interest just got better at it over time and um, learned how to manipulate the system in their favor. There was no counter movement on the other side. Welcome to the IA podcast. Each week we ask a tantalising policy question to a top economic or philosophical thinker. This week's question, are we finally going to solve the housing crisis? Earlier this week, the leader of the opposition, Sir Keir Starmer, came out in favour of building 1.5 million homes if he is elected. Sir Keir also described himself as a YIMBY, or yes in my backyard, because he opposes new homes being blocked by local objections. What Sakir touched on for many was the crucial issue when it comes to the UK's restricted housing supply. Yes, red tape, labour shortages and, until recently, interest rates all play a part. But the crucial issue which nobody has yet tackled properly is that the UK's planning decisions are made on a case-by-case -case basis by local authorities and are extremely vulnerable to being blocked based on local objections. So to discuss this this week, we've got the IEA's very own head of political economy, Christian Nemitz. Christian, thank you as always for joining me. My pleasure. Excellent. So why, why exactly is it important that the localised nature of planning and the disproportionate power of local planning objections is tackled? Yeah, well, uh, the system has been described as a vetocracy, meaning that uh, even if you only have a small number of people who object to development, um, they will be the only ones in practice who turn up to planning meetings. You don't have anyone who is militantly in favour of housing. So uh, what, what surveys show, um, and hasn't always been this way, but what more recent surveys show is that most people are broadly in favour of building more housing, that they see the need for it. Uh, even if you ask if that were to happen near where you live. Uh, then, of course, support drops, but you still get um, something of a majority. It's only uh, a relatively small number of people who are implacably opposed, who will just uh, say no, no matter what. But it's just, in practice, these are, when you have a local consultation, these are the people who will turn up. And we wouldn't make decisions uh, in any other policy area in that way, where um, you have a self-selected group, only the ones who are most aggrieved by something, and you let them dictate the process. The problem is that it's very easy to identify the opponents of a building project, because they are the ones who live nearby, they can anticipate uh, there's going to be construction noise, there's going to be uh, maybe the disappearance of open space or whatever it is, but you cannot in advance identify the beneficiaries. Uh, so I benefit from uh, the fact that my that the house I currently live in has been built at some point. Uh, but I don't think if I had been around at the time it was built, which was I think in the 80s, uh, I don't think I would have lobbied in favour of it being built because before then uh, I wouldn't have known that one day uh, in a timeline which it goes ahead uh, I'm going to live in it. Uh, you cannot identify the winners of the policy and therefore you cannot mobilise them. It's a very asymmetric situation. Only the people who are opposed to it are the ones who can realistically be politically uh, mobilised. Absolutely, and it's a classic case of whenever the 
government gets involved in, in approving or not approving something, you are likely to have a problem of uh, concentrated benefits and yeah. dispersed costs because, yeah. as you say, you can't identify who exactly those beneficiaries are because they're mm. so widely spread. It's people like me, unseen people who aren't realistically going to be homeowners anytime soon. Um, and so underpinning all of this, all of the, the various government bodies, uh, quite extensive control over our planning regulations is the Town and Country Planning Act of 1947. This is a very controversial piece of legislation, uh, albeit a fairly obscure one until recent years. What role does that have to play in all this? Yeah, what it basically meant is that uh, before then there was uh, a system where owning land also included the right generally to build on that land, so subject to um, some conditions and um, it could be overwritten, so uh, if there was a particular reason why you shouldn't have the right to build on a particular uh, plot of land that you own, um, then that was always possible. There was a planning system long before the Town and Country Planning Act. It's not uh, that there was some kind of anarchy before. It's just that, generally speaking, owning a plot of land uh, included the right to build on it. And um, unless it was specifically prohibited for some reason. And the Town and Country Planning Act turned that on its head. Uh, it meant that from now on, ownership of land no longer includes the right to build on it. If you wanted to do that, you would have to specifically apply for permission to do it. And of course, uh, that permission can be withheld. And so it just reverses the default option. It turned a permissive system a uh, system where um, unless something is specifically prohibited, you can do it. It's, it's, the presumption is it's generally allowed into a system where the reverse is true, uh, where something is uh, specifically and automatically prohibited unless specifically and explicitly allowed and, and you get the permit for that. And uh, that really was the game changer and, and uh, we can really see a change in uh, house building rates fairly soon after that act uh, was passed. So this is sometimes obscured by the fact that uh, the, we, nobody talked about a housing crisis in the, say, the, the 60s or, or, or 70s. There was um, still a housing boom of sorts but, uh, in the post-war decades. It's just that uh, the Center for Cities, they've looked at this in more detail, at the house building rates, um, pre-war Britain, post-war Britain, and also comparing it to the rest of Western Europe. And what, what they show is that the golden age of, um, of house building in Britain was really before, in the decade, uh, well, the last peacetime decade before uh, the Town and Country Planning Act, so the 1930s until the outbreak of the Second World War. Uh, that was the decade with the highest rate of house building ever. And um, after the Town and Country Planning Act, even though there was a building boom of sorts in the 50s and 60s, it was less than uh, that 30s building boom. It was already a, rel uh, a relative reduction. And also, it was, um, it was lower than the Western European average. So even that supposed boom uh, of the 50s and 60s was by no means a golden age. It was a period of relative decline. So the British housing stock fell behind uh, its counterparts elsewhere on the continent. And um, relative to historic trends, so it was pretty soon after the Town and Country Planning Act that uh, house building rates began to, to suffer. It just took a long time, of course, for that to have an effect on affordability uh, until that really makes a difference for, uh, for, for you as a representative 
buyer or, or renter, that takes a longer time. But nonetheless, the, the, the Town and Country Planning Act was a game changer. And later on, as you say, um, th these effects really begin to be to be felt in earnest. You have the, I think it's, is it 1974 Town and Country Planning Act? There was another one at some point in the early 70s, wasn't there, that sort of made this a bit worse. Uh, and then, you know, moving forward, you, um, it, they continue to add, you know, little bits of red tape here and there. Um, but it's not really until the 1990s, I think, the early to mid 1990s, and then seriously after the 2008 financial crash, that things like the gap between average earnings and average house prices really begins to diverge. Is this a matter of these regulations were going to make the impacts of, uh, were going to create a housing crisis at some point, that just happens to be when it really began to be felt? Or is there anything else that changed in the intervening period to make this situation worse? Bit of both. Uh, so. Uh, as I said, even in already in the 50s, um, a relative decline in house building rates, but still doing pretty well. Uh, it's just that once you had the, the Town and Country Planning Act uh, 47 in place, there was uh, quite a lot of follow-up legislation. So green belts uh, only started in the 50s, and uh, there you had room for... Um, incremental restrictiveness. So initially, green belts were relatively small. It was, uh, perhaps uh, somewhat ironically, it was in, in the Thatcher years, uh, not just, uh, but uh, among other periods in, that, uh, in those years, that uh, the green belts began to grow in size as well. I think it roughly doubled uh, in, the, in the 80s and 90s. So um, you had a restrictive policy already in place, and it just covered more and more land uh, as uh, time went on. And of course, this is all prime real estate. And you also had um, NIMBY interests just getting better over time at exploiting the system. So uh, the fact that you have case-by-case -case consultations, that doesn't in itself mean that everything is going to be blocked. Uh, you could, in principle, have a situation where uh, all these options for uh, raising objections exist on paper, but most people don't know about them or don't know how to game the system or whatever. NIMBY interest just got better at it over time and um, learned how to manipulate the system in their favour. There was no counter-movement on the other side. As is always important to remember in any policy discussion, the biggest question is not necessarily what the ultimate outcome is, but who decides. And this is a serious problem when it comes to the system we have right now, where decisions are made hyperlocally by politicians who are going to be accountable by two existing voters in the area, giving them a massive incentive to listen to those existing voters who are going to overwhelmingly be very active uh, and probably more nimby um, mm. than, you know, me, who's not yet in that area, for example, but might hypothetically move there later on. Um, but people have been warning about the effects of this. You know, the IA published uh, uh, an article called No Room, No Room uh, decades ago uh, that touches on some of, this, some of the Greenbelt problems and some of the problems with uh, having decisions made at the local level, um, all the way up to very recently where um, Britain Remade and Sam Dimitri did a, uh, an interesting report that you know, really zeroed in on the decisions being made on a case-by-case -case basis yeah. as seriously damaging. Um, and, and in fact, I think Sam Bowman pointed out uh, at, uh, at a, a conference I was at recently in Berlin that the local authorities we have in the UK 
are probably um, sort of too small to be able to understand the full ramifications of what they're doing, the national significance of, of their planning decisions. Um, but also sort of probably a little bit too big in terms of if you have very, very small democratic decision-making like street votes, for example, yeah. then people can be coordinated. They can be bought off, basically, to mm. agree to not object to a certain piece of planning regulation. People have been warning about this in lots of different ways for a very long time. Why has there been so little action to tackle it? Well, until recently, uh, it just hasn't been widely understood uh, that... Um, so I remember a survey from, was it a decade ago, something like that, where people were asked um, what policies they would like to see to alleviate the problem. And it was mostly demand-side measures that were popular. So something like what would later become help to buy, a demand-side subsidy, that was popular. And things about redistributing the housing stock in some way, so bans on second home ownership or uh, banning foreigners from buying houses, um, all of which things that you can argue for maybe, but it's that's going to be that's a footnote, that's marginal compared to supply side led solutions, and that was one of the least popular response or uh, policy response options. So. Uh, that may have changed in the meantime, but until very recently, it wasn't widely seen. And it's it was just the case in, say, if you read something on uh, housing in a mainstream newspaper, you would get all kinds of um, misunderstandings that you'd have people saying, oh, well, of course, it's bad here because uh, Britain has a higher population density. And surely that's the reason the country is full, um, that sort of stuff. And just not really uh, is only quite recently that I've seen more people point out the fact that the housing supply here, uh, number of housing units per 100,000 inhabitants, uh, however you want to measure it, is just much lower than in comparable countries. And uh, that that is really what makes Britain different from its neighbours or other developed countries elsewhere in the world. And uh, that just wasn't um, widely seen. And therefore, if people don't see a connection between house building levels, uh, and maybe the opposition to it, and NIMBYism, and uh, subsequent increases um, in house prices, then there isn't going to be an opposition to NIMBYism. You will just uh, see that as somehow, even if you suffer from the housing crisis, even if you're, um, if, if you're at the sharp end of it, say as a, as a private tenant, or somebody is stuck uh, on, on a social housing waiting list, or somebody who uh, living with their parents, can't move out because it's too expensive. Even for those people, they would just not see a, co a connection between NIMBY protests uh, against house building and the problems that they experience. These would just be completely separate things. And since the NIMBY campaign, sorry, the YIMBY campaign has really taken off in earnest, I guess a fairly modern, a fairly new phenomenon in the last 10 years or so, mm. much of the energy in the UK has been in circles that you would broadly say identify with the centre-right in this country. Um, and yet, interestingly enough, that it's out of the centre-left that this idea has come from this week. Um, in the United States, uh, quite a broad swathe of the YIMBY movement over there is very much aligned with the centre-left. Do you think that there are certain ideas that the political left has, such as opposition to inequality and entrenched hierarchy, entrenched interests, that sort of lends itself a bit more to solving the housing crisis and bringing down the, 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 the 
price of housing and boosting the supply of it? Or do you think there's something else at play here? Uh, no, I'm not surprised by that. I think that makes perfect sense. I've always, uh, when in talking about the subject, I've always said uh, I'm obviously a free market classical liberal, but I think you can make a perfectly good left-wing case uh, for the leading to the same conclusions or a perfectly good um, communitarian conservative case. Um, it, it shouldn't really, it's a case where it shouldn't really matter where you stand uh, on the political ideological spectrum, whether your main worry is uh, inequality, that, that's uh, what, what animates the left of course, and the system we have does entrench inequality very much and it, uh, it, it's an extremely regressive system. Um, it doesn't hurt you very much if, you, if you're from a rich family, then it's an inconvenience, but you can live with it. Uh, it's really people in, uh, close to the bottom of the income distribution and uh, that, that suffer most from this. Um, and we, we can absolutely see this in the data as well, that um, the, the Institute for Fiscal Studies has this comparison of incomes before housing costs and after housing costs. And um, on the before housing costs measure you see steady increases uh, pretty much over time, not just on average, but also for people uh, at the lower end of the distributions. If you look at the 10th, uh, 20th, uh, 25th percentile or, or wherever, uh, they still had, until uh, until the financial crash, um, steady increases in, in real incomes. It's just that uh, you get a decoupling that if you look at incomes after housing costs, then uh, it looks a lot less impressive than for people uh, in, say, the bottom, yeah, nowadays, pretty much bottom half of the, of the distribution. Uh, that um, you get longer periods where living standards basically stagnate or where there are increases, it's less impressive. So it really has the most uh, pernicious effect on poorer people and therefore it should be a topic uh, that should have animated the left much for, for a much longer period. Um, in, in fact, if anything, I'm surprised that they didn't already start doing this uh, maybe 30 years ago or, or, or longer. Uh, but no, it's, uh, it makes perfect sense that, um, and I'm glad that Yimbyism, uh, to the extent that you can describe it as a political movement, really does cut across the conventional ideological tribes. So uh, there are, I, I feel um, ideologically closer to a left-wing Yimby uh, than I do to a right-wing NIMBY. Uh, even though I'd maybe, maybe I'd feel differently, say, if I lived in France, where um, the level of housing supply is generally adequate, or at least much better than here. Housing shortages may be a localized problem in some areas. Uh, there you can say, well, okay, the housing sector, housing policy is not really that important. Um, I rather form coalitions with people with whom I agree on tax policy, trade policy, um, whatever, healthcare. Whereas here, uh, we have a situation where the housing market, or more generally just building, building stuff, it's also infrastructure, energy, uh, whatever, um, that really is the bottleneck. Uh, that's what's holding back the British economy. That's the reason why uh, Britain hasn't been growing for a very long time. And therefore, uh, it's not that surprising that that has become something of a of an alignment issue. That uh, where if you agree with someone on that, that person is an ally, even if you disagree uh, on on lots of other things. Now within 
reason. Of course, if somebody came along and said, um, if if somebody uh, were, if if somebody is uh, say a literal communist or a literal fascist, and uh, but but said, but I agree with you on housing, but then okay, I wouldn't see that person as an ally. But if somebody is uh, say so, uh, agrees with me on the housing planning issue, but would see a larger state than I'd consider ideal, they don't say, well, given where we are in, in the current situation, that isn't as important as the thing that we agree on. So I don't see a problem there with um, a cross-ideological YIMBY coalition. And what, what we see here, you know, when we take a forward look at this, um, is that we've been stuck in a cycle of bad incentives, as is often the problem with these things. Um, going back to the, the Town and Country Planning Act, that's set in motion, um, you know, this cascade and, and cycle of, of people rationally responding to the incentives in front of them and it producing bad outcomes. Um, and those cycles are exceedingly difficult to break. Mm. People who have that power in front of them and rationally use that power to protect their own interests don't want to lose it. And what we are saying, what in fact Keir Starmer said on, on the radio earlier this week is, yes, in order to get this done, we may very well need to just ignore local objections yes. and diminish their legal power and their, mm -hmm. their authority. Are there any examples in the past of where countries or jurisdictions have had a similar type of problem and have managed to successfully break that vicious cycle? I'm not aware of a... A good comparison uh, because most places, most developed countries have never had a case-by-case -case planning system, a, a discretionary planning system. That's why it's particularly the Anglosphere, the, the developed English-speaking world that is uh, the outlier. That's where you see the big increases in housing costs over the past 30 years or so. And uh, I'm not aware of an example where somebody has moved away from that system to a different one, uh, where we have better examples. Most of the, of the developed world is better. It's, so this isn't a case where uh, you have to identify shining examples. It's more a case of being average is already quite good. Uh, yeah. The average uh, OECD country is doing fine housing-wise. It's really just um, a number of countries and a number of regions within countries. So uh, in the US, it would be mostly places like California. It would be uh, certain states that have that problem. It's mm. not the whole uh, country necessarily. Uh, it's really a couple of places that have these problems, whereas most of the developed world is doing broadly okay. So this isn't the case where we have to look for the shining examples. But if we had to look for some positive stories. Uh, I've read something recently about uh, Houston in, in Texas, yeah. where uh, I know nobody would associate them with good planning. For, for a long time they were um, a sprawling uh, town and, and uh, yeah, well, uh, this whole settlement structure of, uh, of car-dependent um, outward sprawling cities. Single families owning, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the problem there though wasn't really that, was not that it was unregulated uh, or, or that they had, uh, that planning controls were too loose. Uh, they did have them of sorts. It's, it was just mostly the, the sort of zoning constraint where, um, where they would say in this area and in that area you can only build single family housing. Yeah. Uh, so that means uh, whatever you build, uh, it will consume a lot of space. And if there's a lot of building going on, 
and you can't densify, then you can only grow outwards. At least that they didn't restrict, so therefore they never had a problem of uh, exploding house prices. Uh, but it did mean it uh, growing demand, in their case, expressed itself in the form of sprawl. Um, what they did more recently was just making it easier to densify. Uh, so getting rid of these uh, or rolling back these constraints uh, of um, having large areas which can only be developed in a low density way and also just the existing places, uh, permitting them to densify later on. So they may be single family housing now, but you just allow them to either knock down a, fam a single family, single story house and, and build something bigger in its place or just build upwards and um, yeah, they've done that in large parts of town and uh, of, of the town, and they had, even though they had a massive population explosion over the past couple of decades, uh, house pricing house prices are remarkably stable. Um, so yeah, that's that's pretty good. And um, a place in New Zealand, I think it was Auckland, where they also did an uh, well, what's what's called upzoning um, in their system, where they also had large parts of town uh, being low density uh, by mandate and just allowing higher density housing to develop and um, in their case it wasn't revolutionary but what did happen was that uh, they used to have uh, housing costs used to grow at a rate above the national average since then it's been below the national average so uh, showing that planning reform really did make a difference so there are uh, Positive, some positive examples uh, where countries or regions or individual cities even um, changed more recently, but most of the time we just have to look at places that have just never had the kind of system we had in the first place. Well, on that somewhat optimistic note, that is unfortunately all we've got time for. Christian, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, if you enjoyed watching uh, that video or listening to that conversation, please give it a like on YouTube and subscribe to the IA London YouTube channel. Uh, you can also listen to the IA podcast and all of our content on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you ordinarily listen to your podcasts. Thank you very much for watching.